Welcome back to the New England Baseball Journal podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Opening day for Major League Baseball is set for July 23rd, and we have a special guest who has been on the Red Sox beat for almost 20 years. Rob Bradford will begin his 12th season covering the Red Sox beat at WEEI.com, and he breaks down the outlook for the Red Sox season, his predictions for the World Series, and some of his favorite moments covering the team since 2003. Rob also ranks the top GMs and managers during his time covering the team, and he talks about what it was like to manage Kurt Schilling when the former Red Sox pitcher had a blog at WEEI. For coverage of the Futures League, Newport Collegiate Baseball League, Area Code Games tryouts, or a history of the top teams in New England prep school baseball, visit the New England Baseball Journal website at baseballjournal.com. Now let's get right to the interview with Rob Bradford. If you're a listener of WEEI, you've heard Rob Bradford. Rob is the executive editor at WEEI.com. He previously worked the Red Sox beat with the Boston Herald and Lawrence Eagle Tribune. He's also written two books, Chasing Steinbrenner, following the front offices of the Red Sox and Toronto Blue Jays through the 2003 season, and Deep Drive, A Long Journey to Discovering the Champion Within, which he co-authored with Red Sox third baseman Mike Lowell. Rob, how's it going? Oh, man, Dan, I, the fact that I'm talking with you on this podcast, this is the height of my uh, pandemic hiatus. Right on. So, like, <laughs> and we have baseball coming up. It's, everything's coming together. I know, I know. Yeah, that's why we're having you on. Uh, you've, um, so we were just talking before, before I started recording here. We've worked together in a couple different places. When I was, um, I think I was just starting at the Gloucester Times, and you were on the the Red Sox beat for the Lawrence Eagle Tribune. And then um, what I, I really appreciate, back then we used to run into each other once in a while in different offices or, you know, covering different events. And you'd always ask a, a million questions about what I was working on when, you know, I felt like I should be asking you about how things are going on the Red Sox beat. Was that, is that something that you typically care about or, or were you just being nice? No, man. Like, well, first of all, you know, I came from the Gloucester Times, so and I came from that world. It wasn't only the Gloucester Times. It was the Salem News. It was that whole collection of papers. So, you know, so my career path was basically like when I got out of college, I was a freelancer for the Salem News, like Phil Stacy, who's the sports editor there now. Um, and then ultimately, like after a few years, I became the sports editor at the Gloucester Times. And then I became, like you said, then I went to the Lowell Sun, then I went to the Eagle Tribune. But, yeah, it's – I I – I have more, this other stuff is like, you know, obviously you cover the Red Sox, it's out there, but I want to know how the ITL is doing. I want to know how the Intertown League, I want to know how the Essex Shipbuilders are doing. I want to know how, what's going on back at the Salem News, like, and, and you were my sort of conduit to that. So I always appreciate it. I always thought, and I'm not just saying this, I always thought you did like a really, really good job. And I know that we're going to jump forward here a little bit, but you I was so happy when we had a contest at WEI, the next great sports blogger, and you entered into it. I'm like, oh, awesome. Because I, I knew that, number one, you know, you, you were working a flake on us. And number two, that you were legit. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I love it. Like, I love it. I love to answer your question. No, I mean, I'd rather talk about stuff with you than a lot of people. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. The, uh, I was I was actually thinking back at that time period. We talked about it a couple of minutes ago. Like when I was starting at WEI, 
it was a it was a really exciting time to be getting into WEI because you had just started the website. You were kind of doing it before everybody started their own websites. And I think that the year that I worked there, like some of the other guys that were contributing to the site, um, I think maybe you even had offered Bill Simmons to do an occasional column. You oh, no. Yeah, so, so we started in 2008 of August. I was the beat writer for the Herald, or a beat writer for the Herald for the Red Sox, which I thought was my dream job. That was going to be it. And then EI started this project, and you know it was a combination of they were putting a ton of resources into it at the time eei was the be-all end-all in, in the sports medium in the area i mean you know dan i mean it was like ei drove the conversation right that was it that, nothing else i mean the newspapers wrote stories off of what was talked about on eei so i figured that was a good dynamic and then they were letting me start from scratch pretty much and you know so our our my for a full-time hire was alex spear which obviously has gone on to great things at the Globe. But also, initially, it was going to be co-editors, me and Tony Maserati. And uh, Tony backed out, and then I think he went to Boston to come. But we offered, it wasn't Bill Simmons, but it was, we offered, um, oh no, we, we actually had him right. Will Leach had, uh, he was the guy at Deadspin. And people forget, at that time, Will Leach and Bill Simmons were sort of neck and neck. Like they were, their perception was very, very similar. And so for this project, this, this sports radio station website to have this guy write for, for us was, was, listen, he didn't do a very good job for us, but I will say this, percep- sometimes perception is just as valuable as the content that you're producing. And I think that was the case there. It was a, it was a great time, man. Like it was, you said, like we, we basically, we started that and then the next year, you had Comcast do the same thing. You had ESPN Boston do the same thing. But it was a pretty big leap of faith in a time where uh, there I, I don't think we'll see again. Yeah, no, that was fun. I think the just during the year that I worked there, like you said, it was Will Leach. I think Kurt Schilling started a blog on the website. Oh, yeah, we, um, we hired Kurt Schilling, yeah. Yeah, I think Michael Felger and Kirk Minahan were both writing for the site that year. Well, um, yeah, Minahan was a part-time copy editor slash fantasy writer. Yep. Felger wrote, um, Felger had a deal where he had to appear, he had a weekend show, and then he was first fill-in, and he had to write, I think, two or three columns, uh, which one of them which was a mailbag. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was that was another thing. <laughs> of Will Leach, Kurt Schilling, Michael Felger, Kirk Minahan, Alex Spear, and myself, who do you think has had the most success over the last ten years? Dan Gutenplan, no <laughs> question you. about it. Thank no you. question about it. But the, you know, it's funny because you know it's it's such. You know, I'm not going to go into it. You know, I, if you want me to, I'm happy to. But there's so many great backstories to it, and Schilling is a perfect example of this. He, you remember. Like he had his 38 pitches block and we talk about social media for athletes and we talk about, um, you know, the, the, what is it? Um, uh, what is the one, the, the player's tribune and all all that, but he was the first one. And so when he retired, we're like, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with him. So, okay, let's, you know, just try to get Kurt Schilling's blog. And the negotiations for that were so trippy. I mean, it was going into his, his office and, you know, talking with him and going through this. Finally, we strike a deal and it was basically, he was going to blog for us and appear on the radio uh, once a week. 
Um, and one of those appearances would a month would have to be in studio. And I will say this about Schilling. Like, he was really, really hard to manage, but he was great for business. In the same way as a player. Same thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was crazy times. I know. Yeah, I think he announced his retirement on the site. And it just oh, crashed. dude. Yeah. Yeah. Were you there? Yeah. So were you part of I don't know if you were at the site when that was going on. Because, because what happened was he, he texted me. It was like Thanksgiving I want to say it was the night before Thanksgiving or something like that. And it was a terrible time, whatever it was. And he texted me, said, I'm going to have a post for you later tonight. So I stay up late waiting, nothing, nothing, nothing. I wake up at six o'clock the next morning, look at my email, still nothing. So I go back upstairs and I watch West Wing uh, for like two hours. And I come downstairs and I have a million texts from him. And he basically, like, sent me, without letting me know, sent me his retirement post. <laughs> so I immediately put it up. And as soon as we put it up, and you probably remember, like, sort of, this is one of the problems with our site, was our server was so bad, we cheaped out on the server. And so I put it up, and you can see it grinding to a halt. Oof. And all of a sudden, sure enough, about 20 minutes, site crashes. Kurt Schilling wasn't able to retire because our site crashed. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is trying to retire on our site, and we can't even do that for him. So finally, we, we figured it out, and I guess he had jumped on a plane, so he didn't even know about it, um, know that he wasn't able to retire. So um, it was different times. <laughs> I actually, I, was, I, I didn't realize what the, um, you know, I guess you hear about all these negotiations with MLB and the Players Association, you kind of, I, I was doubting whether the you know the season was even going to happen. Then all of a sudden, the other day, I saw a baseball beat guy tweet. He got cleared to come out of quarantine and cover his team. I guess I didn't realize uh, reporters had to go through a quarantine process. It, did you do that? No. You have to fill out. What you have to do is you have to fill out a bunch of forms. Basically say, you know, did you have any of these symptoms? Have you been out of the state? Have you been to these states? Um yeah, it, I, and the, the, the thing that I think people are trying to get their head around is travel. Like, there's, there's absolutely no sense in reporters traveling, yet some reporters will travel just to sort of piss on their territory to say they're traveling, yeah. which is, I find, sort of offensive because it's like people are getting furloughed and laid off and, and you're opening more people up, more people to get sick by exposing people, all for the, just the sake of getting Marriott points and sitting in a press box by yourself and doing Zoom calls which you normally would do at home. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but now we're a few days away. It looks like, um, you know, there's still a lot of issues. It seems like players are testing positive for the virus. Uh, looks like the blue Jays aren't going to be operating out of Toronto. Uh, how do you, how do you expect the season to play out? How do you think we'll, we'll look back on it and remember this season? Well, I, I think, I think the season's too big to fail. So when everybody says they're not going to make it through the season, I, I don't agree with that. I, first of all, I think that after that initial weekend of, oh, my goodness, the tests aren't coming back, we're shutting down workouts and everything else, like anything, you figure it out. I mean, this is new to everybody. So they figured out a lot of this. There's still going to be some bumps in the road. But you do have 60 players to draw from for each team. And the playoff money means so much to the owners that I don't think they're going to just jump ship because a couple guys get COVID-19. I, I do think as we sort of head into opening day here, 
there has been a shift in the player's perspective about, hey, now we can tr- concentrate on baseball. We can focus on baseball because we do feel fairly safe. I mean, honestly, Dan, like the thing is, these guys, you can say stay six feet away from each other and don't high five, but they're the ones getting tested every single day. Like every single day they're getting tested. Right. So, you know, I, I don't, I think their worry, as long as they don't go partying out in speakeasy bars or whatever, I think they'll be okay and they will get through the season. Yeah. I'm not sure about the Red Sox this year. I think, um, you know, but I kind of like it now that it's going to be a shortened season, you know, 60 games, maybe, you know, they're, they're, I don't think they're as talented as they have been after they, you know, cut Mookie Betts loose and Chris Sale is going to be out for the year. I, I think they were probably better last year, but it's almost like they, they've leaned into this weird season and they're just like, hey, um, you know, it's a good year for Chris Sale to kind of recover from his surgery. What, what are your expectations for the Red Sox? So anybody who say, says, oh, this team's set up for the 60-game season better than this team, no one knows. No one knows any of this. I mean, you, we've seen teams get off to good starts and go in runs. You just don't know. And it's the same with the Red Sox. I, here's my case for the Red Sox, where Eduardo Rodriguez is one of the best pitchers in the American League. Nathan Ovaldi takes advantage of a 60-game season and gets on one of his runs because he's, he, he hit the ground running and he's ready to go right now. Um, Martin Perez is the guy that he was for the first, whatever, six starts last year, and he's figured out everything, and, and he's just, he just needed a new environment, and, and everything's going to take a turn for the better for him. Ryan Weber is going to look like the Ryan Weber we saw all in spring training, and there you go. And then you have a lineup that's really good. There's your case for the Red Sox. Now, at the same time, you have Eduardo Rodriguez, who isn't going to be pitching for a week and a half, and has been sick. You don't know how that's going to affect him. We have Nathan Evaldi, who hasn't proven that he can be consistent. You have Martin Perez, who had an ERA of over five last year. And you have Ryan Weber, a guy who basically has been bouncing up and down in the minor leagues for the last few years. So it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to tell. Like, I, I actually, I just did my prediction. I picked the Minnesota Twins. And one of the reasons I picked the Twins was because I think Rich Hill would actually be a huge, huge benefit for them. Rich Hill, the guy who wasn't even ever going to pitch in the first three months of the season if there was a regular season. But now he's ready to go because he, 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 the timing's been perfect for him. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, listen, Dan, like, it's going to be wild. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, it's, I wish every season could be 60 games. But, you know, obviously that's never going to happen because of my. I actually grew up a Phillies fan, but I've been in Boston now for half my life, so I feel like I know both of those teams pretty well. And I got I got really excited last year when the Phillies signed Bryce Harper because you know you're like, all right, well they're they're going all in here, they're going to be relevant for you know ten years or however long he's around. But then I think they they kind of expected fans just to accept that as enough that one signing, and their starting rotation was brutal last year. I think they were, had one of the highest ERAs of any team in baseball. So it was kind of a weird strategy considering they, they threw a ton of money at him for this contract and it's not going to age well. So you'd think like if you're going all in on a guy, like try to win in his first few years. I guess my point is when you spend, you know, 300 plus million on a guy, you better kind of set everything up around him if you're going to get it right. So in that respect, I kind of understood the decision to to get uh, to trade Mookie Betts. That being said, I think he's a better player than Bryce Harper and... um I kind of hate to see them hedge on the fact that they're going to screw up other acquisitions so that they can't keep their star player. W- what did you think about letting Mookie Betts go? 
Yeah, you know, I, I didn't think they were going to get the value they needed back from him, and they ended up getting decent value. Um, as it turns out, it's worked out great for the Red Sox. I mean, David Price hops out, and, and Mookie Betts, you know, you don't have him for a couple months. I mean, if, if put, you know, it might be worked out for the Dodgers because they might win a World Series with Mookie Betts, but for the Red Sox, if, say, that you kept Mookie Betts, you didn't trade him, and all you had with these couple months, it would probably like, ah, oh, man, probably should have traded him. I think that, you know, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet. I think where the Red Sox went wrong was not just telling fans, say, this is life, man. Like, this is, oh, it's okay. You know, we're going to, this is how the world works in baseball. Sometimes you just have to reset perception of it a little bit. It is interesting you bring up Bryce Harper, though, because it, it has proven out that if you are going to allocate big money to one guy, it, it doesn't work out a whole lot. Like, you better make sure that you can, you, and t- I've talked to, I talked to the GMs, the Phillies GM, Matt Klintak, about this. I talked to Billy Epler, uh, the Angels, about signing Trout. And they all say, well, no, we can do this because we feel like we, A, have the support system uh, on the roster, and B, we have the farm system. Now, Bryce Harper, like, I would say, like, I could have told you flat out, like, that was a bad move because, Dan, I mean, he's a, he's a good player. He's a very good player. But he's also a guy who was hitting in the 240s. You know, and I know batting averages and everything – but to me, if you're going to like, like build around a guy and allocate that much resources to a guy, you better make sure it's a whole lot more like Mookie Betts than it is Bryce Harper. And the other element to it, which they, they won't really pound their chest about, which is the marketing part of it. And as a Philly fan, you've probably seen that. They have the guy, right? They have Bryce Harper. Right. Like they sell the T-shirts for Bryce Harper. Like if you didn't have that, like what you'd be doing, Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, you know, so you have Bryce, you have the Bryce Harper T-shirts, and that does factor in a lot to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's 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 kind of a freakish guy. Like when he was in high school, everybody was like, he's going to be the best thing ever. So I was hoping. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. It was probably a bad signing, but uh, no, I would say it's a bad sign. It's just said, <laughs> you know, like what are you gonna? Can you? Is it gonna? It was always the thing. Like you, you're a basketball guy. Yeah. It's like. All, you know, do you sign the guy? If you sign the guy, is it going to hamstring you to sign the guys around him? And that's always how you have to look at these signings. Like, is it, it's fine to spend a lot of money on somebody, but as long as it doesn't make the rest of your team crappy. Yeah. And I mean, that I picked, I actually picked the Phillies to go to the World Series. So I'm banking on them not being crappy. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. You're uh, welcome. The, uh, well, the, I think the, some of the guys coming up for the Red Sox are, you know, guys they're probably going to end up spending a ton of money on with, uh, you know, Devers, I think is awesome. Um, I love watching Bogarts play. Like you said, Erod has, he has all the pitching. I'm a little worried about that it was such a big deal when uh, Dennis Eckersley criticized him for having a bad game because maybe, maybe he has a tough time with criticism and David Price was, you know, trying to protect him from that. What What's your feeling on those guys? Well, I think that, in that respect, I, like Erod has come a long way in the last few years. I think he's matured a lot. I don't think he's sort of like the puppy dog guy following around David Price as much. He's becoming his own guy, in which they need him to be. And so I really think he's he's taken a step forward in terms of mature. Like he is, I think he is going to be one of the best pitchers in the American League. And that's and you bring up like Devers. Devers, I think Devers is going to be one of the best young players in the American League. I think Xander Bogarts is one of the best shortstops in the 
in the, in the baseball. J.D. Martinez is obviously one of the best power hitters in baseball. So, like, they have some pieces and they have some exciting guys. But the interesting part of this is that kind of come back to sort of the Bryce Harper phenomenon, which is, you know, the guy, the guy who is, like, going to buy, you're going to buy the T-shirt for. That was always Mookie Betts. That was always Betts. That was the guy. And before him, it was always David Ortiz or even, like, Dustin Bedroya. But now, like, you go out and there isn't really that guy right now that you say, I got, I'm going to go get his, and I keep saying T-shirt, but, you know, whatever, poster, whatever. You know, he, I'm going to go get that guy's name, and that's going to be the face of the franchise. I, would, I think it should be Bogarts, but he has to get out there more, and he has to kind of build off of the season that he did last year. And ultimately, it will be Devers, but Devers has to, still has to prove himself beyond just a year and a half. So um, they have some interesting pieces and an exciting time, but I can tell you, Dan, like people in Boston have not bought in at all. They just haven't. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe it's that perception that it is a bridge year, that it is a, a work in progress. But, you know, still, I mean, the fact is they have almost a $200 million payroll, and if you have that, you should be expected to win. Right, yeah. And now you were saying before this call, you've, you've been at EI now 12 years. You've probably been on the Red Sox beat for almost 20 years at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of weird because, um, like I said, I, well, I got the sale news. You're stringing, you're doing high school stuff. And then I did a freelance thing for a while, um, which is I was around the Red Sox. So I was doing stories for the hometown papers as a player, so freelance stories. And then, you know, I go to Gloucester. I don't really do Red Sox. You know, the, the fisherman's uh, football team is not going to allow you to do Red Sox games. Right. And so, um, and then I went to School Sports Magazine. There's no Red Sox there. Then I went to the Lowell Sun. And I guess so, I did a book, you know, as you mentioned, Chasing Steinbrenner, where I followed around Theo Epstein in his fall, first year and J.P. Ricciardi when he was the man, general manager of the Blue Jays. And that was 2003. So, I think even though I wasn't full-time on the beat, I guess that's when you would say I, I started um, really sort of digging in. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I said this as well. People think, oh, you know, you've been part of you know, what was like the 2004 World Series. Like, I was answering field hockey calls at the Lowell Sun during the 2004 World Series. Yeah. So um, the Eagle Tribune, when I started there in 2005, that was really like when I was like, okay, this is your beat. Um, and I was only there for a year and a half, and then I go to the Herald and the EI. Yeah, I one of my favorite things about I I covered the Red Sox a little bit when I was with um, I guess I was an editor at Newburyport Daily News, and we used to kind of do like Sundays were up for grabs if you wanted to cover the Red Sox for a home game. So uh, myself and Alan Siegel kind of split that. And so I covered I don't know maybe like a dozen games over a, uh, the course of a season or two. And I always got a kick out of like the big personalities in the clubhouse and baseball. I think that was back in like the Jonathan Papelbon, Julian <laughs> Tavares type days where Bobby Valentine was there for a year. Who was um who was the most bizarre person you ever covered on the Red Sox beat? Oh my goodness. You mentioned one, Julian Tavares is very bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Um it, it, bizarre is a good word, way to put it because you know, every, you know, that, that's the thing I don't, and I think that maybe you can appreciate this, that being in clubhouses and locker rooms is that you have these people get out of journalism school, right? And they show up and they have the, the notepad and the recorder, even though like, okay, you don't need both. Like, that's just a fact. <laughs> right. And so 
you have everything that you're taught and you know how to write a lead and but if you walk into a baseball clubhouse you have 25 guys from 25 different backgrounds and they all have different personalities and so the 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 ability to interact on a human level is so so important so like you know like julian tavar is yeah he i mean this is a guy who grew up with no roof on his house with no floor on his house they never they basically stopped going to school when he was just a little kid like i'm from essex massachusetts how can i relate to that i have to factor that in and then pedroia this kid from from northern california who's a loud mouth you know yelling at everybody and then you have jd drew who might be who is a very god-fearing guy who is, uh, is is just like a totally different perspective of of the world in baseball. Not a bad guy, an interesting guy, but totally different than a David Ortiz, who is just all about baseball, a guy from the Dominican. So, um, I mean, that's the thing that I think that people sort of miss the boat on when they say, hey, you, I know you went to Northwestern or Syracuse or whatever, go cover this team. And now it doesn't matter because we're all on Zoom calls, but... That is something that is totally, totally uh, not not taken into consideration enough. That's fun. I wonder, I actually made the mistake of not considering that enough one time. I was covering a game on a Sunday. This was, um, I want to say, maybe like 2012. It was that first year with Adrian Gonzalez and uh, Carl Crawford. And um, they had a really disappointing month of April. I want to say they were like 14 and 16. I'm covering this game on a Sunday. And the thing is, there's like, you know, 50 to 100 uh, members of the media in the press box. And you're trying to you're trying to do something different. You don't want to write the same story or cover write a game story just like uh, you can grab that from the Associated Press. So anyway, I'm I'm covering the game. I'm in the clubhouse after the game and uh, throughout the course of the game, I'm just reading through the notes that they give you. And like the one thing that caught my eye is I think the Red Sox went into the game like, oh, for their last 21 with runners in scoring position. So for some reason, I lock in on this, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of a different angle to take. Maybe they'll um, snap that streak today, and that'll be the story. So it gets late in the game. It's like a 1-1 game, or it might even be one nothing. and the Red Sox are continuing that streak. I think they left like eight or nine guys on base throughout the course of the game. Uh, finally, they have a walk-off hit. Adrian Gonzalez like hits it off the wall. Uh, it's a walk-off win. So I get down to the clubhouse, and um, you and it's always tough to figure out like when do you approach the guy, you know, because he like gets to his locker, he sits down, he's kind of changing, and I'm like, oh, it'd be cool if I get him right now. This would be an exclusive one on one before everybody crowds around with their cameras. And so I like walk up, and I'm like, hey, you know, I just wanted to introduce myself, and I was like, um, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, I guess the Red Sox went into this game 0 for 21 with runners in scoring position, and then it was like 0 for their first nine tonight. Do you think a team, uh, a hit like that could kind of turn, you know, break the tide and, you know, really get you guys going so that you're all of a sudden a good team with runners in scoring position? He's like, he's like, I don't know who you are, man, but you're looking at this through the wrong colored glasses. And he's like, we just had a walk off win and you're, you're asking me about runners in scoring position. So all, the, <laughs> all these guys are crowding around me and they're like, hey, let's usher this guy out of here. Nobody knows who he is. Like he's, at, he's like picking a fight with Adrian Gonzalez and I'm, I was just like, I don't know how that happened. But, yeah, Adrian well, Gonzalez, I, by the end of that year, like, he got kind of, um, it seemed like he was a little bit a little bit sensitive about everything. Well, so. was that, so was that 2011 or 2012 when he ended up getting traded? Um, yeah, so I think it was, let me think, I think it was his first year there. Okay, so, 
So you're, I mean, like that doesn't surprise me. It's perfectly well, perfectly legitimate question. <laughs> but you know, number one, it's it's tough because you know, one of the things about baseball is that you, like you have so much access, but these players they want to see you around a ton, right, and so yeah. they like there. There's definitely a um, an advantage to like having your face seat, like especially on the road. If you go on the road, like that's like. I think it's totally worthless to go on the road for football. I think it's very valuable to go on the road for ba- baseball because of relationship building. And, um, but Gonzalez, you know, he, <laughs> it's funny because he came in and he was a guy, he had a, actually had a great year that year, but he was, he, he, he was just, I got along with him. Okay. But it was just, he just sort of took a turn. Like a lot of those guys the next year, it took a turn. It was sort of like, I can see him saying it in that tone to you. Because he's sort of like the guy who, like, he thinks he knows it all, but he doesn't know enough, you know? Yeah. And, like, he, what he should understand is that it's a perfectly legitimate question, but he's not, he, he, can't, he can't see the second layer of the moment. And, you know, so that doesn't surprise me. You did a good job. <laughs> No, I mean, I probably, I, sh- I probably should have gone in with like a softer lead in, like, hey, so great hit, yeah, blah blah blah, but um, no big deal. So yeah, I wanted to ask when you mentioned Theo Epstein and following him for a year, that must have been um, really cool. I think the the general manager of the Red Sox is a difficult job. I guess it depends on your perspective. On one hand, you've got the resources, the money, the history of being a championship contender, at least here in the last fifteen twenty years, the fan interest. Um, you know, the budget, but on the other, I think there's a shelf life for it. You can try to, you can try to kind of do the draft and develop route like Theo wanted to do, but there's really not a lot of patience for that. Eventually you have to make some big moves to drive the ratings for Nesson. And then once you do, you know, you get fired once those moves look bad. How, how would you rank the, the GMs in terms of their confident competence for the Boston market? When you look at Theo and Ben Charrington, Dave Dombrowski, and now, High and Bloom is the yeah High and yeah. Bloom yeah. yeah so you know I think Theo Theo's going to go to the Hall of Fame because you know you brought the champion two championships to Boston and then you brought one to the Cubs so I mean I think he's going to go to the Hall of Fame he's proven himself and you go back to that time where I followed him around that was he was twenty eight years old it's insane Dan to think about it twenty eight years old to to be the general manager of the Red Sox. And he was the biggest story of that team. It wasn't any players. You know, I know they acquired David Ortiz and Kevin Millar and, and a bunch of these guys, and they still had stars. And um, what happened was I knew J.P. Ricciardi, who was a Worcester guy, who was a Blue Jays man- general manager for a year. And the Red Sox actually tried to hire before Theo, but he stayed with the Blue Jays. And I said, hey, you know, I have this idea for a book. I want to follow around a couple of GMs. And he's like, okay, yeah, I'm in. I didn't know Theo at all, not like at all. So like I called Theo, I basically cold called him for like a story on a Lowell Spinners guy. Cause I was at the Lowell Sun. I said, Oh, by the way, JP said he would be interested in doing this book with you. And it's like, well, let me talk to JP. I'll think about it. And it was only cause JP basically convinced him. And so, you know, with Theo that year, it was more picking your spots. It was, all right, I'm going to sit behind you for your first opening day. Okay, I'm going to go up to the, the office on this one day that you make this trade. It wasn't like totally follow them around, but it was sort of like that time, that front office, it was this fraternity atmosphere of all these young guys. 
And then you go to Ben, who was obviously part of that. And Ben was just a different personality. And I think Ben gets a, a, a raw deal because he made, some, he made some really, really good moves. I mean, the Dodgers move was important. He won a World Series with 2013 team. Even like you look at getting Eduardo Rodriguez at the deadline for Andrew Miller as a rental, you know, that year, that was important. Um, but Ben was a different personality. He was more low-key, maybe a little more methodical, a little less aggressive than Theo. And then obviously, like, Dombrowski was just, I mean, he was different than them all because he was basically like, I am going to make trades and make signings that are going to help us now. And he did. I mean, he did. He was, he was really good at identifying good trades to make. He was. I mean, there's no way around it. Like, but at the same time, they've sort of left the, the, the cabinet bare a little bit because of these trades. Um, and he made some signings that might have hamstrung them. So, but again, I, I'm not going to say he was a bad GM. Like he, he did exactly what they wanted him to do. And with Bloom, you know, I think it's sort of going back to maybe along the lines of, I think really more Sherrington than Theo, to be honest with you. Sort of uh, not a, a sort of a low-key guy, um, not like, a, like a, as aggressive personality as Theo is, more like a Ben Sherrington. But we don't know. I mean, we don't know how like the Tampa Bay Ray way is going to translate into Boston. We have no idea. And I think that's what's going to make even these 60 games pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And what about the, this year's, uh, it's Ron Renicky is the uh, manager this year. Right. How, how does he stack up against uh, like Terry Francona, Bobby Valentine, John Farrell, Alex Cora? Well, it's, you know, I think Cora, you know, I think if you had to rate him, you, you can't say like Francona is another Hall of Famer. I think Cora, in his two years, I mean, he did as good, about as good a job as you possibly could. I know they didn't have a good year last year, but he, I, I can tell you, like, he had the Boston thing figured out pretty well. Um, and Farrell, you know, Farrell, I thought, was the right guy at the right time um, in 2013. I think he had his strengths. I think he sort of spiraled um, at when they had some bad years. And Bobby Valentine, that was just... <laughs> I mean, it was, let's put it this way. It was unbelievably entertaining. Were you around for that? Like you said, did you come in at all for that? I can't. I, I think I covered a couple of games that year. Um, most of, I think most of the games that was like Terry Francona, it was probably like that 2011-ish. Uh, but, yeah, I, I covered a couple of games with Bobby. One of my favorite interviews that I've ever heard on the radio, he did an interview, um, I think, with Glenn Ordway, and it was like he had pretty much given up on the season and mailed it in and kind of resigned himself to getting fired. And I think he was out in Oakland um, or San Francisco for a road trip. Oh, well, wait, yeah, where he went and picked up his son at the airport and was, <laughs> yeah. showed up right before the game. And, and he said, like, I, I should punch you, right? Yeah, and he was, like, complaining about traffic. It was just the most bizarre interview, but I... I was laughing the whole time I heard it. That was hilarious. Well, I could tell you, you remember this. I mean, that was the thing, that that team was a disaster. Right. I, I, I just said, like, the, the 30 for 30 should be done on that team. Like, all you have to know is that you had Dustin Bedroya two weeks into the season, two weeks, standing in front of his locker, calling out the manager, saying, basically, that's not how we do things here. Maybe that's how they do things in Japan. I mean, that's two weeks into the season. And so, and, and, you know, there were so many parts of that, but the, that rate, that, that weekly interview on our station, I mean, that was, that kept us all entertained during a very like morose sort of baseball world. And like all the way up until the end, the very last day of the season, when he's on before the very last game, 
And they asked him and said, do you feel like you've been undermined by your coaches? And he said, yes. Oh, my goodness. Like, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Right. But I, in terms of Redicky, like, you know, he's a, I hate that. He's a good baseball guy. But, you know, he is. Uh, but personality is completely different. I've been nodding off during some of these Zoom calls. Not, like, not the dynamic personality that Corey could be. So, um, again, this 60-game season, I think that, you know, it could go. You ever, you ever see the movie, uh, do you see the movie 42 with Jack, the Jackie Robinson movie? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Okay. Remember when they bring in, like, the Dodgers manager who just sits here in his street clothes? Yeah, yep. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, like, that's what Redicky could it kind of feels like. Yeah. It's, that's unfair to him, but it's just such a low-key guy. And so different than Cora. And, you know, I, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it translates. Shouldn't they bring back Cora after this year? Is there any way they'll do that? It seems like they should, right? Yeah, I don't think they will. And I think that, you know, like the Heim Bloom, every time he's been asked this question, like the thing that he definitively says, he said, we moved on from Cora because of what happened in Houston, not what happened in Boston. But the key part of that phrase was, we moved on from Cora. Because if you listen to Sam Kennedy, if you listen to some other people in the organization, like, no, no, it was a mutual parting. That was sort of the, the press release and everything. But Hyam Bloom has made no like, doubt about it. Like, he's saying, we moved on from Cora. So, you know, and that's the guy who's ultimately going to make the decision about the manager of the Red Sox. And he's basically saying it's not an option. That's weird. Yeah, you'd figure if if a coach comes or a manager comes in and has the market figured out like the way Cora did, and I guess they, I guess he really had a problem with what he was doing in Houston. Oh well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rob, um, I really appreciate you being generous with your time. I know the season's just about to start, so I'll let you get going. But thanks so much for taking the time and doing this. And um, we'll be following you closely um, on Twitter, at Bradfo and on the WEI website. But thanks so much for taking the time. Listen, it was, a, it was a, number one, it was a highlight to talk to you again, Dan. And number two, it was a highlight to be on this podcast. Um, because it's, I can tell you it's a million times more entertaining than going to Fenway Park, staring at a baseball game, and then doing Zoom calls. That's my existence now. It's <laughs> much more fun. Yeah. So thank you for having me. You got it. Hey, everyone. If you're just discovering New England Baseball Journal through our podcast, be sure to check us out online at baseballjournal.com where you'll find daily content on the New England baseball scene with in-depth coverage on preps, high school, the youth game, college baseball, MLB draft, college commitments, the minors, summer leagues, and the pros, and a whole lot more. Right now, you can get an all-access plan, which includes unlimited access to our daily website, plus every issue of our print magazine delivered to your home, office, dorm, or clubhouse, for only $99.99 per year. It's simple. Just log on to BaseballJournal.com and click on the subscribe button to find the subscription that's right for you. And get in the game with New England Baseball Journal. It's time to go around the diamond for a look at news items and nuggets from the New England baseball scene. For more insight on any of these news items, visit BaseballJournal.com. The final tryout for the East Coast Pro Showcase and Area Code Games will be July 27th at Holman Stadium in Nashua, New Hampshire. 
Several New England players appear to be locks to make the Northeast roster, including Dexter School outfielder Joshua Baez, North Attleboro High pitcher Dennis Collarin, Phillips Academy infielder Jack Penny, and St. Peter Marion Central pitcher Luke DeLongchamp. Phillips Andover rising sophomore Thomas White recently impressed at the Area Code Game tryouts at Frazier Field in Lynn when he pitched five innings in an exhibition game against the North Shore Navigators. Joshua Baez also struck out the side in one inning of work. Their early favorite for MVP of the Futures League is Nashua Silver Knights outfielder Jared Dupree, who is a junior at Northeastern. He is picked up right where he left off during his sophomore season at Northeastern when he hit 359 with two home runs and 13 RBIs in just 15 games. He leads the Futures League in batting average with a 442 average and home runs with five. The top New England prep school series continues this week with a look at the 2010 Cushing Academy team that went 17-3 on its way to a central New England prep school baseball league championship. For more on any of these stories, visit BaseballJournal.com. Thanks again for listening to the New England Baseball Journal podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform and get updates every time a new podcast drops. Thanks to Rob Bradford for breaking down the Red Sox season for our listeners. The New England Baseball Journal podcast is a Siemens Media production.